Great to sing the gospel with you this morning. Appreciate our musicians leading us in music. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd uh, encourage you to take them out and turn with me back to Mark chapter 9. Pastor Jonathan read that for us earlier this morning, and you would have read it this past week in preparation for today. But uh, Mark chapter 9 is our text for this morning. As you find your place there, I I, want to say I'm sure you've been noticing uh, the robins are back, the robin birds are back. We've been watching them in our yard. It's been great to see. Uh, Many of our snowbirds, meaning our family members from this church who uh, took off south for the winter, are starting to make their pilgrimage back home, and we're encouraged by that as well. I want to remind you the next Sunday morning is actually daylight saving time begin. And so spring is on the way, and we're we're encouraged by that and uh, happy about it. Well, you found your place in Mark chapter 9. Let me uh, take just a moment to look to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll get into our sermon for this morning. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, we gather this morning, the first day of the week, and, and certainly grateful to be here. Uh, we, we are pleased and thankful for the signs of spring as the, as the birds return and the, the weather warms and the days get longer. We're grateful for that. But in all reality, we're really longing for wanting to see Jesus Christ in his resurrected glory. We've just sung of his sacrificial death on our behalf, his powerful resurrection, securing our resurrection and guaranteeing our salvation. We know of his ascension and glory, and we, we long for his return and to see him face to face, to know that our salvation would be consummated, our sanctification complete, and we look forward to that with great faith and anticipation. And this morning, as we gather around the table to remember Jesus, his body broken, his blood poured out, we also not just look backwards, but we look forward in faith to that glorious day when we'll partake of this at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So Father, uh, we pray and are grateful for that. We pray this morning as we open uh, your word and and read it again and interact with it, uh, I pray personally that you might help me to preach. I'm unable to do it again apart from the strength that you supply. So I pray that you would enable me to preach. I pray that you would enable all of us to hear, to listen, to pay attention, and to persevere in uh, the lessons that you would have for us today. Uh, Grow us in faith, grow us in grace and obedience, we pray. We ask this in the powerful and precious and glorious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, in our study through the Gospel of Mark, uh, last Sunday would have been Mark chapter 8, and we would have crossed the halfway mark in our study and in our book. But if you were to sit down and read the Gospel of Mark in one setting, which I'd encourage you to do, if you've not done that already, it would take you probably a little over an hour. It'd be very valuable to do that. But if you were to sit down and read the Gospel of Mark in one setting, you would discover that at the halfway point, there is a subtle shift in Mark's writing. In the early chapters of Mark's Gospel, Mark is giving the readers a very clear picture of Jesus' identity, who he is based on what he said and did. In the latter chapters where we find ourselves now, Jesus' identity continues to be revealed, but it's his purpose for coming that moves ever into the forefront. In the early chapters, Mark has made it clear uh, that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He's the promised Messiah. He's the King of God's kingdom. He's the King of humanity. Jesus is the the promised Satan crusher, sin defeater, death destroyer, creation creation restorer, and life giver. And uh, in those early chapters, Mark makes it clear who Jesus is, but in these latter chapters where we find ourselves now, he's going to reveal that Jesus makes it clear why he came. We're going to find Jesus repeatedly telling his disciples that he's going to be rejected, 
He's going to suffer, he's going to die, and he's going to rise again. We're going to, we saw that in chapter 8, we'll see it in today's chapter, chapter 9, we'll see it next week in chapter 10. Jesus is repeatedly telling his disciples about his suffering, death, and resurrection. The disciples are not going to get it. They won't understand it. They don't have a box for it. Uh, they, they have no, nothing in their thoughts or expectations that the promised Messiah is actually going to suffer and die. And so they can't get their heads around that. They won't understand Jesus' death and resurrection until after it happens. They won't understand that Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension is God's way of reconciling the world unto himself through the humble service and sacrifice of his son. Jesus, the perfect one, will pay for humanity's sin in himself at the cross. Jesus, the righteous one, will provide for humanity's salvation through his own death, resurrection, and ascension. And Jesus, the glorious one, the resurrected Christ, will return in great power and glory and liberate creation from its bondage to decay. So uh, the first half of Mark's gospel reveals much of what Jesus, of his identity. The second half will reveal Jesus' purpose for coming. And in the second half, we will also see Jesus is spending great time educating, training, instructing, and discipling his disciples, making it clear to them why he came and preparing them to serve as his witnesses. Well, this past week, you would have read with me Mark chapter 9. It's where we are this morning. If you stand back from the chapter and you look at it as a whole, let me give you just four headings that will direct our thoughts today as we, uh, as we uh, tackle this chapter together. Uh, the first heading, uh, Jesus is glorious. Jesus is glorious. The disciples, Jesus' disciples, are dependent. Jesus' disciples then and Jesus' disciples today are completely dependent on him. And we'll see that in the text. Jesus is glorious. The disciples are dependent. Uh, third heading, Jesus is the greatest. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jesus is the greatest. The disciples of Jesus are de decisively learning Christ, eradicating sin, and striving for peace. And so I'll leave, that, uh, I'll leave that outline up for you this morning. Uh, in other words, as we look at this outline, Jesus is glorious and great. The disciples, not so much. They're not that glorious. They're not that great. They've not yet arrived. But because of Christ, they will arrive. Because they're following Jesus by grace through faith, they will arrive. Jesus, they will be like Jesus in the end. They're not there now. Well, let's make our way through the text and again, I'll leave that outline up there on the screen for you. Let's make our way through the text and, uh, and see where I came up with this outline for today. In the opening paragraphs of Mark chapter 9, we see that Jesus is taking Peter, James, and John up on the mountain where he is transfigured before them. Uh, Peter, James, and John, they get a privilege that the nine other disciples don't get of seeing Jesus in his resurrected glory. It's awesome, it's otherworldly, it's unimaginable. We see that in verse 2 and in verse 3. He said, and he was transfigured before him. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So here is Jesus in his resurrected glory. And we read in verse 4 that Elijah and Moses appear with Jesus, and they're having a conversation. Jesus, Elijah, and Moses, they're talking with one another. And I wonder, as you read that this past week, I wonder how many of you were like, I wonder what they were talking about. What was that conversation? That had to be remarkable. Now, if you didn't ask yourself that, you at least had to laugh when you find Peter breaking into the conversation and saying something stupid. Yeah. Peter's like, oh, hey, here's 
Elijah and Moses and Jesus having a conversation. What, time out for a second. Can we, can we like build you guys some tents? You're like, goodness, there's a time to be silent and there's a time to speak. When Elijah, Moses, and Jesus are in conversation, it's a good time to shut up and listen. It's a good time to close your mouth and open your ears. Uh, Mark doesn't reveal to us what Elijah, Moses, and Jesus were talking about, but Luke does. Uh, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke tells us what they were talking about. What were they talking about? Elijah, Moses, and Jesus were talking about how Jesus will accomplish his departure. His departure will be an accomplishment. In his death and resurrection, he will secure the salvation of mankind. This is remarkable. Jesus has been telling his disciples that he's going to be rejected, he's going to suffer, he's going to die, he's going to be raised from the dead. And now Elijah, Moses, and Jesus are having that same conversation. And Peter, James, and John are hearing it all again through different voices. As we read this encounter, we discover that even Jesus breaks in and Jesus, or God breaks in and God speaks up. And he says to Jesus' disciples, this is my beloved son, listen to him. We see that in verse 7 what the Israelites had historically failed to do. The Israelites had historically failed to listen to God's word delivered to them through God's messengers. God is now telling Jesus' disciples, listen to Jesus. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Shut your mouths. Open your ears. Listen to Jesus. You know, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. Listen to Jesus. We're not waiting for another word from God. Jesus is God's full and final revelation. And God speaks up and he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Jesus is God's word. God's word to us. You know, the opening paragraph that we've just considered here, it reveals that Jesus is glorious. Peter, James, and John see him in his resurrected glory, and they're in awe by him. God speaks and identifies Jesus as his eternal beloved son. Moses and Elijah speak with Jesus concerning the accomplishment of his departure. The apostle Peter, who was there on the mountain, will later write about it. And in 2 Peter, in the opening chapters, he will say, hey, we, we saw Jesus' majesty. We beheld his glory on the mountain. But then he goes on to say, but you have something better than that, than our subjective experience with Jesus on the mountain. You have the scriptures written down like a light shining in a dark place. Listen to the scripture. Listen to the scripture. Well, when Jesus and his three disciples, Peter, James, and John, come down from the mountain, they, they encounter the, the other nine in a hot debate with the religious leaders, with the scribes. We see that in verse 14 through verse 29. And uh, Jesus comes down from the mountain with the three, Peter, James, and John, and there's this hot debate going on, and Jesus questions, what's the argument about? And the disciples are silent. And the scribes who were arguing with him, they're silent. And finally, a, a man from the crowd speaks up, and in verse 17, he says, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams and grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. Sounds like an epileptic seizure. Only worse, 
Because as we read on, we discover that this spirit who indwells this little boy seeks to destroy him by throwing him into the fire or into the water. Now, here's a child that no one can babysit. Here's a child who, who doesn't get invited to come to mop's ministry or mom's ministry. Here's a child no one can watch because he's deaf, he's mute, and he's self-destructive. If someone doesn't have an eye on him continually, he'll die literally. These parents are on an island by themselves with this deaf, mute, self-destructive boy. And the exhausted father brings the child to Jesus, and Jesus is away. As I read that this past week, I thought, boy, aren't you glad for the Holy Spirit today? Jesus said, it's good for you that I'm going away, because if I go away, the Holy Spirit will come and be with you forever. Here, here this father, this exhausted father, brings his boy to Jesus. Jesus is gone. He's up on the mountain with the other three disciples, and we discover that he brings this boy and the other nine disciples. They're unable to help. They can't help the dad. They can't heal the boy. The father is exhausted and without hope, and now he's skeptical because of Jesus' disciples and their inability. The disciples, the nine of them, they're, they're helpless. They can't do anything. And the religious people, they just want to argue about everything. They just want to debate it. And so you have an exhausted father, a helpless disciple, and you have an argumentative religious crowd. And along comes Jesus. He can do things. He can do all things. Nothing is impossible for Jesus. The man speaks up and tells Jesus that he brought his son, and then he says, if you, if you can do anything, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Jesus can do all things. People who believe Jesus are joined to Jesus, and nothing is impossible for Jesus. This isn't a blank check for superhuman accomplishment. No, this is just Jesus declaring his power and his ability. This man says, well, I believe, but I'm skeptical. I brought my boy here, and your nine disciples couldn't do anything. I believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus says, all things are possible for him who believes. Jesus can do all things. Notice in the text, the father doesn't heal the child. One of Jesus' disciples don't heal the child. Jesus heals the boy. And he's the only one who can. He's the only one who can. Jesus commands the spirit to leave the boy and never return. The spirit leaves and the boy drops to the ground lifeless. The majority, it says, the majority of the people there said he, he's dead. He, he's not breathing. He's done. He's expired. And Jesus takes him by the hand and raises him up to new life. You know, in this experience, we read the father lacked faith, verse 24. The disciples failed to pray, verse 29. So this is where I'm getting my outline. Jesus is glorious. Jesus is powerful and glorious. The disciples are dependent, completely dependent upon God, completely dependent upon Jesus. They can do nothing apart from him. And I find this whole encounter very interesting because the disciples back in Mark chapter 6 had been sent out by Jesus to preach and to teach and to cast out demons. 
And they went out and they did it. And they came back and told Jesus about all their success. Now this opportunity comes along and here's a boy with a, uh, uh, he's possessed by a demon. They think they can do it again and they don't pray. And they don't acknowledge God and they don't rely on him to do the impossible. They think they'll do it again. But apart from faith, expressed in their prayerlessness, they fail. The father isn't the only one lacking faith in the story. The disciples had a misplaced faith. A faith in themselves, a faith in their history, a faith in their past success. And in the absence of their faith expressed through their prayerlessness, they can do nothing. They can't help. So we learn from this, the characteristic marks of Jesus are power and glory, and the characteristic marks of Jesus is faith and prayer. They're completely dependent upon Jesus. They can do nothing apart from him. Well, in the text, we move forward. We move forward from this glorious experience of Jesus' transfiguration on the mountain and also this public demonstration of Jesus' power And we move on to a private situation where Jesus begins instructing his disciples. We see it in verse 30 through 32. Uh, We read in the text that once again, he's already told them in chapter 8, he's once again telling the disciples that he's going to be delivered over to the hands of evil men. He will be rejected, killed, and crucified and raised from the dead. The disciples don't get it. This time they don't even ask about it. It's in this context of this instruction that Jesus is giving his disciples about his death and resurrection that Mark drops in the conversation that the disciples were having. Jesus is talking about his death and resurrection. What are the disciples talking about? In verse 33, and they came to Capernaum, and he was in the house. He asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, a little bit embarrassed here, for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. Jesus is telling his disciples his purpose for coming, and they're talking about, well, who's the greatest? Peter, James, and John, they get to go on all the special missions. They got to go there when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, and they, they did something up on the mountain. We're not sure what that was all about, but Peter, James, and John, we know they're pretty special. Who's number four? Now, this is going to come up again in the text. A little, little further along, James and John are going to get Jesus off by the side and say, hey, can we sit by your right and left hand in your glory and your kingdom? Can we be the greatest? Jesus gives him an education on who is the greatest. Verse 35, it says, Jesus sat down and he called the 12. He didn't call the three. He didn't call the nine. He called all 12 of them. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus gives him an instruction on what greatness is. Greatness is humble service. And he illustrates the instruction by having a little child come and sit on his lap, a little child who is not the least bit concerned about greatness. The greatest people, they don't promote themselves. The greatest people, they don't demean or belittle themselves, hoping to be propped up by others. The greatest in God's kingdom are humble servants, servants of all. So Jesus is telling his disciples about his death and resurrection, his whole purpose for coming. They're debating who's the greatest. Well, let me ask you, what's the answer to the question? Who is the greatest? Who's the greatest servant of all? Jesus is. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes and he says, Though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, he did not 
count equality with God a thing to be held onto, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, Jesus, the eternal son of God, the Satan crusher, sin defeater, death destroyer, life giver, the one who pre-announces his death and resurrection, this Jesus, who is God's son, beloved son, he empties himself and he takes the form of a servant. Who's he come to serve? He came to serve, seek and to save and to serve the lost, you and me. He served everyone. Who's the greatest? Jesus is the greatest. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The disciples are debating who's the greatest. Jesus is the greatest. He's the servant of all. And Jesus tells his disciples exactly what Paul tells us in the book of Philippians, do nothing out of selfish ambition. But in humility, consider others as significant as yourself. Look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others and serve one another. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ. Have the mind of Christ. Learn Christ. Learn to be a servant as he was. You'll stop debating your greatness and you'll become great without even knowing it because you'll be serving others. The disciples debate who is the greatest. Jesus is the greatest. And in following Jesus, the disciples will learn. They'll learn to serve. They'll learn to fulfill their purpose. Serving others is what we were made for. It's what we were made for. Yeah, you and I were created by God for God. We were created by God for responsibility in the world. We were created by God for relationship with one another. We weren't created for ourselves. We weren't created to be an end in ourselves. We were created for God. We were created for others. People who are servants of all, they're the greatest of all, and they don't even know it because their attention isn't on them. It's on serving others. Now, this is remarkable. Jesus is telling his disciples what greatness is in the kingdom of God. When Jesus Christ returns in his power and glory, and we see him, and our salvation is consummated, and our sanctification is complete, everyone who populates the kingdom of heaven will live this way. That's remarkable. We've never seen that before. Everyone in the kingdom of heaven will be attentive to the other. Remarkable. In this last and final paragraph, Jesus again has told his disciples his purpose for coming. He's now giving them an education. He's training them to be his witnesses. He teaches them about greatness, verse 33 through 37, which we've just considered. He teaches them about welcoming others who believe Jesus and serve him but aren't in their group. We see that in verse 38 through 41. Boy, I'd love to park there and have a whole message there. Uh, welcoming others who believe Jesus and serve Jesus, but they're not in our group, but we still welcome them. Have you heard about the thing going on in Asbury University? Have you all heard about that? You know, that a revival started down there or some chapel service and went on for a couple of weeks. And well, pff, the Asbury people, they're, they're Wesleyans. They're holiness people. Got a Methodist background. They're not in our tribe. And I've heard all sorts of conversation about what's happening in Asbury. I haven't been there, but I sure heard a lot about it. And people who are thankful for it and believe God's doing a work, and people who are like, no, this is man-made, whatever. Boy, we, we got to learn this lesson. 
John says, hey, we, we saw this guy, he's casting out demons in your name, Jesus, but he's not in our group. So we said, hey, stop, no more of that. And Jesus says, no, no, no. <laughs> if he's believing me and serving me, you, you, you welcome him. You serve him, help him, give him cups of water. <laughs> so Jesus is teaching his disciples. He tells them, teaches them about greatness. He teaches them about welcoming others. And then he teaches them the, the necessity of battling against sin. Sin, which leads to death and judgment and hell. I, I, want, I want you to look with me at two verses. I'm going to put them on the screen on purpose. Because if you've been using your little journaling Bible, there's a, there's a paragraph break between these two verses, and there's a heading between these two verses, and it really ought not be there. It really messes us up. But if you look at verse 41, I'll put it on the screen. Jesus is speaking. He says, For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Jesus will by no means lose his reward. And so those who are thoughtful and kind and generous to other believers in Jesus, even if they're not in our tribe or in our group, they'll be rewarded, or at least they won't lose their reward. But then it goes on right to the next verse, and he says this. Let me, see, let me read the whole thing. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones, disciples, who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That's dreadful. We can hardly imagine anything worse. Someone who has a cinder block tied around their neck and they're thrown into the sea, they don't survive. They drown. That's a terrible, horrible death. We can't we can hardly imagine that. Jesus said it'll be better for that person than for the one who will face judgment for causing another believer to not believe and to sin. So in other words, Christ followers, Jesus' disciples, they serve God's people with kindness and help and they'll be rewarded. People who undermine the fragile faith of little ones People who undermine the faith of other believers will be in an unimaginable bad way, like worse than drowning. So here's this education in this final paragraph. You want to serve God's little one. You want to give them help. You want to give them aid. You want to strengthen them and cause them to grow. You don't want to cause them to lose faith and to disbelieve and disobey. Now, as believers in Jesus we know that our problem with sin isn't just with outsiders seeking to undermine our faith and cause us to sin. We have enough battle with sin on our own, right? There, there are people who either through persecution or persistent questioning causing you to doubt, there are people outside of us who will seek to undermine our faith and lead us to disbelieve and to sin. But we, we have enough battle with sin on our own, we have temptation on the inside, and that's a real problem. We don't, we don't need outside assistance to sin. We have enough battle of that on our own. But it's in this context that Jesus takes his disciples into a triplicate instruction on putting off sin with all violence. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. You don't want to miss life. You don't want to miss eternal life. 
you don't want to not go or enter into the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus isn't talking about self-mutilation, which was prohibited in the law. Cutting off hands, cutting off feet, gouging out eyes is a shocking metaphor underlining the seriousness of eradicating sin. Now, we know that Jesus paid for our sin in full at the cross. We're no longer under condemnation. Hallelujah, right? I'll no longer face the punishment for my sin. Jesus has paid for the punishment of my sin in his own body. It's why he came. But Jesus, who has paid for sin, through faith in Jesus, I've been united to Jesus, united to God, brought into his family, and as a person whose faith is in Jesus Christ, we are violently putting off sin. Putting on righteousness. If we have cancer... We want it eradicated. If we have cancer, we want it cut out. We want to get rid of it. We want it away from us. Last Sunday night, I was talking here to Chris and Linda Pitcher. And uh, Linda had ovarian cancer, went through treatment for that, spread into her liver, went through treatment for that. Last Sunday night, they're telling me it's now gone into her lungs. Monday, we get a phone call It's in her brain, resulting in immediate surgery. They'll cut into her head and remove the tumor. You see, if we have cancer, we want it gone. We want it eradicated. Get rid of it. Do we feel the same way about our God dishonoring behavior? I got to get rid of this. I got to cut this out. This has got to be gone. I can't do this apart from Christ, but in Christ I can do all things. I need to go to work and get rid of this. You see, I I really appreciate what Pastor Ben Lair said last week. Pastor Ben did a great job preaching Mark chapter 8, and toward the end of his message, he made this point. He said, believers can often become too focused on their sin and not focused on Jesus as they should be. And I'm like, oh, I, I heartily agree. Believers can often become way too focused on their sin and not focused on Jesus as they ought to be. I heartily agree, but I'll add to it a nuance this week. We don't want to be too focused on our sin. We don't want to be too flippant about it either. We don't want to justify our sin. We don't want to coddle our sin. We don't want to condone our sin. Those of you who've been here long enough, you know I hate the statement, well, I'm only a sinner saved by grace. Can't stand that. It's not true. If you've been saved by grace, you're no longer a sinner. You're something new. You're something different. I'm only a sinner saved by grace, so I'm a sinner. That's what you can expect from me. Sin, sin, sin. That's what I do. No. I once was a sinner. I was saved by grace. I'm now a saint. I'm now a holy priest. I belong to a holy nation. I'm something completely different and new. I no longer identify as a sinner. I once was a sinner. I've been saved by grace. I'm now a saint who is learning in the power of Christ to put off sin with all seriousness because I hate it. Believers in Jesus have no interest, zero interest, in that which killed their Savior. None. Jesus says here in this, do do surgery on what is causing you to sin. If it's something you do, hand, If it's somewhere you go, feet. If it's something you see, eyes, cut it out. Get rid of it. 
Deal with it decisively. Jesus says, do surgery on what is causing you to sin. Paul says, put off sin like an athlete changes clothes after their competition. Imagine with me a, you know, a Friday night football player, high school football player. He's a great football player. He plays both, both ways. He plays offense. He plays defense. He plays all four quarters. They win the game. After the game, his uniform smells like the bottom of the locker room, right? It stinks. It stinks. It's grass-stained. It's bloodied. Can you, imagine a, can you imagine this kid who plays all four quarters, stinky uniform, at the end of the game, he's like, no, nah, I'm not going to change into my clothes. And on Saturday, he shows up for his sister's wedding in his football outfit. They're like, no way. Go home and take a shower. Go home and change your clothes. You smell like an armpit. Jesus says, do surgery on what is causing you to sin. Paul says, put it off like an athlete changes clothes after their competition. Verse 49, Jesus says, everyone will be salted with fire. Peter says, judgment begins in the household of God. Uh, the fire of judgment purifies God's people. It punishes the wicked. And God's people have zero interest in that which killed their Savior. We're learning to put off sin like sweaty clothes. We're learning to put it to death like eradicating cancer with a knife. We have no interest in it. Well, that's the message. If you lost the message along the way, let me give it to you here again. Jesus is glorious, and Jesus is great. As disciples of Jesus, we're not. We're not glorious, we're not great, but by God's grace, we're making headway. We're on the way. In Christ, we're on the way. In Christ, we will arrive. Today, Jesus is teaching us. And he's training us with his word, just like he trained the disciples of his day to learn, as, to, to, learn to live as citizens of his kingdom. We're learning lessons today, the very lessons that Jesus taught his disciples. We're learning to live in humility and in service and in cooperation and welcoming the other believers and in sin renunciation and in peaceful relationships with one another. We don't want to trip one another up. We don't want little believers and little disciples to be doubting and disbelieving and disobeying. No, we want to stir one another up to love and good deeds. We want to see other disciples grow and mature and progress in faith and godliness. As disciples of Jesus, we're not great and we're not glorious, but by God's grace, we're trusting in Jesus and we're on our way to glory and we're on our way to greatness. Jesus is our vision. He's the object of our faith. Jesus is our trajectory. He is the way. And Jesus is our destination. We're going to arrive as he completes his work in us. We're going to be where he is. Today, we're not, as disciples of Jesus, we're not glorious and we're not great as Jesus is, but we're completely depending on Jesus. And our dependency on Jesus is reflected in our faith and in our prayer. We're depending on Jesus and learning Christ together. And this is a community project. We're learning to serve one another in love. And we're learning to welcome one another as he welcomed us. And we're learning to put off sin and put on righteousness. And we're learning to strive for peace. Making for peace between one another. Well, this is Mark chapter 9. Jesus tells us why he came. And Jesus is training his disciples. And that training continues today to those who listen. Listen to him. Take him at his word. Believe and learn to live by faith and step with his spirit. You know, as we close our service this morning, we're going to gather around the Lord's table and remember his body broken for us, his blood poured out for our sin, his powerful resurrection. We're going to look forward in faith to his glorious return. 
I'm going to close this part of our time out with a word of prayer. And as I do, if the gentlemen who are going to help distribute the elements of the table this morning, if you'd come forward, I'd appreciate it. But let's, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we recognize that Jesus is glorious and great. Nothing is impossible for him. All things are possible for him. He can do all things. We recognize and acknowledge his, his tremendous greatness revealed in his humility. Though he was God, he came, was born a man, and lived in perfect obedience and died as a sacrifice for our sin, taking the punishment that we deserve. Oh, we, we thank you for Jesus. You vindicated him. You expressed and displayed your pleasure in the accomplishment of his departure by raising him from the dead, never to die again. And his glorious, powerful resurrection guarantees and secures our own and has provided for our salvation. So we, we gather around this table and we remember Jesus crucified, buried, risen, and returning. And we boast in Jesus Christ. Father, we recognize our own weakness. As we sang this morning, we are often prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. We don't, we don't need outside assistance to sin. We, we, we struggle that in ourselves. Father, we thank you that by your spirit and through your word, you give us all that we need for life and godliness. In your strength, we can learn to put off sin, to put on righteousness, to pursue peace with one another. Father, thank you for this table as we gather around it this morning to fellowship and remember Jesus. I'm grateful that we partake of it together with our eyes wide open, looking at other disciples, saying these, these are ones that we're walking the road of the cross together. And you give us grace to persevere. Bless now our fellowship around this table as we remember Jesus. Strengthen our fellowship as we strive for peace as we live out our life in faith in Jesus Christ, believing his promises today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.